Well, greetings. It's good to have you with us. Uh, this is the online uh, service, worship service, uh, brought to you by Coyote Baptist Church in Appling, Georgia. And it's, uh, it's a joy to do this. It's, uh, it's, a great, it's a great opportunity for us to try to share God's Word with you. And so thank you. I, I hope you uh, I hope you will get your Bible and open it. We're, we are studying through the book of Romans in a series we're calling Not Ashamed. And um, we're in chapter 3. So if you don't have your Bible and you need to pause me, do it now. Um, go get it. Come back. Hit play. and We'll be right here. So Romans chapter 3. Let's read it. Uh, we're going to start in verse 1. It's a fairly... This passage that we're looking at today is, uh, is 20 verses. So hang with us, and then we will finish the chapter next week. And I have, without even thinking, obviously open to Ephesians chapter 3, which won't do us any good today. Um, not, a bad, not a bad chapter to study, but we're in, in Romans 3. So here we go. Verse 1. Then what advantage has the Jew... Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. As it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to afflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not to do evil that good may come, as some people slanderously charge us with saying? Their condemnation is just. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths, are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Since through the law, comes knowledge of sin. Okay, large piece there, a lot to try to embrace and 
and digest. And, um, and so let's try to do that. I don't know about you, but um, as a child growing up, I was a fan of, of I, I, we called them scary movies. And uh, there was just something about um, kind of being on the edge of your seat, wondering when whatever it was was going to jump out at you. But one of the plot lines that, that bothers, I think, the most is when the protagonist in the movie, the main character, who is generally the good guy, turns out to be, in the end, the antagonist or the bad guy. And I suppose that one of the most famous examples of this plot line is the story of, of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. If you recall, Dr. Jekyll is this kind, considerate, handsome, giving uh, doctor who seeks to make others better, to make them well, to make them whole. Whereas Mr. Hyde is this dark, menacing, evil murderer of a man. Well, spoiler alert, as it turns out, Mr. Hyde is actually Dr. Jekyll. It's his darker um, counter self, if, if you would. He kind of, Dr. Jekyll makes a potion, drinks it, and we see this man at his very best, and yet now all of a sudden we see him at, um, at his most evil, at, at his worst. And I think what, what makes Robert Lewis and Lewis Stevenson's story so riveting is that while most people, we tend to see ourselves as a Dr. Jekyll, the truth is there is a Mr. Hyde lurking inside of each one of us. Well, much earlier, the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes in this letter to the church in Rome, uh, writes to these early believers and ultimately to you and I as well in order to expose our Mr. Hyde. Uh, what we have called during this study the bad news. The bad news is we are lost. We are uh, against God. We have turned from what is obvious what should be obvious to us, and we have suppressed that obvious truth, and we have ran toward our own way, and our own way is evil and sinful and ultimately leads to unrighteousness. But he is moving us toward and has sprinkled nuggets in even through as we take up chapter 3, what God has done to deal with that dark reality about us through Christ. And that's the good news. And um, I have, I will remind you again what, what I've tried to just season in is that we're going to cover through verse 20 today. But starting in verse 21 of chapter 3, there's a, there's a pivot, a major, major pivot. 
It's as if Paul is going to say, okay, I've told you everything I have. I've written all that I have to the, up to this point. Bad news to focus on the good news. And he begins that, and we'll dive into that next time we're together. So, in chapter 3, really as he has the previous two chapters, but I think in, a, in, a, in an even more compelling way, Paul shows us our situation. And so we're going to look at and, and see how we can deal with, with our situation. Um, what is best and what is unfortunately most common. So I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you two major, major points. And I'm going to give those to you now so that as we, as we look at them and kind of flush them out, um, you'll have the big picture, okay? The first thing Paul does is he answers some objections, okay? He, he answers objections. And then after he does that, uh, he, he peels back the truth about you and me, okay? So let's, let's look at how he answers these objections. Coming out of what is our chapter 2, what he has written, he has dealt, and dealt kind of sternly, if you remember, with the Jews. After, after really focusing on non-Jews, what, what the ancient world Judaism referred to as the Gentiles, and um, basically what that means is people that, that were, did not know Scripture, our Old Testament, they were not familiar with the law, many of whom were, we would call pagans, um, they worshipped either idols, themselves, nature, the environment, um, anything but the Lord God, right? They, uh, they didn't know what Scripture said. And in chapter 2, Paul says, as a result, they're not going to be judged according to the law. They're going to be judged according to what they should have known but rejected, okay? And he deals with that, but, but, but toward the end of chapter 2, he really confronts the, the Jew, the first century Jew, and really the 21st century Jew as well. And we made the, the, uh, the comparison of, you know, first century, a first century Jew with the 21st century church-going religious Christian, Okay? And, um, and, he, and he ends up saying, hey, listen, you think that you are a child of God and you're a true Jew because of who you were born to. And the fact if you were a male, you were circumcised, you bear the mark of circumcision. But in God's economy, the truth of the matter is a true Jew is not someone who's simply been circumcised outwardly. A real Jew is somebody that bears the circumcision of the heart, that has exercised faith in God. That's the true Jew. That's the true Jew. And he even goes so far as to say, somebody who does not bear the outward mark of circumcision, that bears the inward, the real mark of circumcision, circumcision of the heart, that's the true Jew. That's the person that God is after. 
Okay? So you might imagine if you're if you are racially, ethnically uh, a Jewish first century person and you're hearing this read, the cackles on your neck might be raised a tad, right? And so Paul, Paul, as he often does, not just in Romans, but in other letters of his, he recognizes the fact that, okay, there are going to be some questions that, that these people, that these people have. And so, um, in order to deal with their objections, he gives four rhetorical questions. All right. They're objecting. Hey, hey, what about this? So Paul addresses it through these, these rhetorical questions. So let's look at it. Let's, let's look at how he answers these, these objections. And they're, they're, they're objections that a Jew might have. But again, if you are relying and trusting in your religion, in your churchiness, in the fact that, okay, I've made a profession of faith. I'm, I am by baptism, by catechism, by confirmation, I'm a Christian. Um, and that's kind of the, it's more of a surface thing. Then you, you might have these objections too. So, so here we go. The first one is, the first question is, Paul raises is, what's the advantage of being a Jew? Verse one, literally that, that statement, then what advantage has the Jew or what is the value of circumcision? And here's his answer, verse two, much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. So that's a big deal. Paul says there is a, a, a huge advantage in being raised a Jew. You have the word of God. You have scripture. What in, in the, the, at the time Paul wrote this would be the Old Testament. More than simply the law, you have the law, the prophets, you, what was known as the writings. Um, and yes, the same case could be made to the religious church-going Christian today. Is there, is there any advantage in attending church? Well, there is a high value if, it's a, if it is a um, Scripture-teaching congregation. There is a high value that's placed on Scripture. It's the Word of God. That's an advantage. Okay? You don't, hopefully you don't have to struggle and worry in, in, in everyday life with the validity that, th that this is God's Word. Okay? So that's an advantage. The second question he raises in response to these objections, kind of kind of stating the objection for them in the form of a question, is, is God's faithfulness suspect since his people are unfaithful? Now that might seem like a head-scratcher, but, but notice how he phrases What if some were unfaithful? All right? Now you, you can just, he's, he's just talked about, hey, just because you're outwardly circumcised, you're outwardly a Jew, if you're not in your heart, then you're not faithful. You're, you, you, you don't have the true circumcision. So that's a legit question, right? What if some people, some of God's people, were unfaithful to God 
himself. Does that challenge the faithfulness of the Lord? And verse 4 is Paul's answer to that question, by no means. And then he gets really stern. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. So God's character and faithfulness remains true even if every person rejects him. It is not a reflection of his faithfulness or unfaithfulness. He is true to the point that Paul goes so far as to say, let everyone else be proved a liar. God is true. Do you look at just we're going to move on quickly, but what kind of impact does that have on your daily life that God is true? God is true. Now, I want to say this in all humility. Some of you are experiencing some really tough times, really tough times. We have, uh, over the course of the last few months, had, had some dear, sweet people lose some dear, sweet family members. And, um, and, and that's, that, that can be tough and it can cause you to question and at least ask the question, you know, God, where are you in this? You know, did God, did God somehow step aside from his kind and gracious and sovereign and holy rule for my, when my loved one died? Um, and the resounding answer is God is true. He is faithful. When we lost our youngest son almost 11 years ago and uh, died in a one-person car wreck and uh, at 18 years old, and I, I would say to you that what has held our family together, most personally was held me together, is even though you, you, you know, the, the question arises, but just coming back to the fact that God was on his throne, that even in, in the case of this darkest moment of our lives, God is faithful. God is faithful. And, uh, and that's, he was faithful in the moment he called Johnny home. Maybe, maybe the, the instant of, of his greatest faithfulness to our son, who was a believer, was in his calling him home. But, but like I said, it was the bleakest moment in our lives. And uh, I don't think we would have made it without the reality and the sense. and the, 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 I don't know if understanding's the right word, but the foundational truth that God is faithful at all times. There's never a 
nanosecond in all of creation before and after that God will not be faithful. He is true. Though all the world be a liar, God is true. God is true. And whether it be personal experience and difficulty and pain, whether it be the, the rat-tat-tat of the enemies uh, just kind of clawing away at you, maybe it, it be uh, a moment of physical pain and, and, and sickness and suffering. Maybe it might be mental suffering that you or a loved one is going through. Um, God would have you know that you can trust and rely on him. He is faithful. Okay. I, I, I just, I, I wanted to address that. Third question that Paul raises in response to the, the perceived objection is found in verse five. And that is, is God fair to judge us? Look at what he writes. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. That is God fair to judge. And here's, here's Paul's answer. And he, and he prefaces it by saying, listen, I'm, this is not the way God would have us understand um, but that's what I perceive as the objection. Maybe it's better if I sin in order for God's righteousness and holiness to be exalted, right? And he says in verse 6, by no means, for then how could God judge the world? Here's what he's saying. God's, God's standard, um, God's judgment Neither one are new. It is by His grace that He gives us the standard of truth, of His Word, of Himself, in order that we recognize that we can't keep it, that we can't keep it, that we need help. Paul elaborates this on this truth uh, later in Romans, so we won't, we're not going to camp out here. He, he, he really digs deep in the book of Galatians. He writes the letter to Galatians really predicated on this point. That the law, the Old Testament law, and uh, I think by inference, Scripture was given to us to, to, to expose not, not how we can be saved by keeping the Scripture. So that when we stand before God at judgment, he's going to say, you did everything right. Come on in. That is the embodiment of salvation by self-righteousness. But what Paul has said, will say, writes to the Galatians, the purpose of the Old Testament, particularly the law, is to show us we need help. We need help. That unless somebody outside of myself intervenes and provides what I cannot give to myself and what no other person can give to me, it would take a perfect Messiah, a Savior, who is spotless without sin, 
to save you. And that is exactly what God has provided. So, um, let's go to the fourth objection. Um, and that is found in verse 7, where he writes, But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? So the, so the charge here is, should we sin in order to boost God's reputation, right? And the answer is, really, Paul is saying, this is both wicked and deceitful. Verse, the second part of verse 8, why, or just verse 8, why, why not do evil that good may come, as some people slanderously charge us with saying? Their condemnation is just. He really doesn't give an answer other than the fact that this is evil. This thought is evil. Now, in fairness to Paul, a little bit later on in the letter in Romans, he's going to come back to this point. Because when he says he's been charged with teaching this, he's going to address that. He's going to address this very charge in a few chapters. Um, but to this point, he is saying this is... This idea is worthy of judgment. So, um, overall, in these four objections that he gives these rhetorical questions to address, uh, he's actually going to address this whole Jewish situation of how God deals with the Jewish people, uh, of which, of course, Paul was one. He's going to deal with it in much more thoroughness in chapters 9 through 11. And so that's why we're not spending a great deal of time on this. We're going to he's going to do so. But I want to I want to close out these eight verses. And really what he writes in the second half of chapter 2 with an illustration that uh, I first came across from the now uh, deceased pastor Ray Stedman. Uh, he's with the Lord now. And, uh, and, 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 and Ray, Ray, I think, illustrates um, the role of the Jews. And really, by default of Jesus' teaching in the Gospels, particularly the Sermon on the Mount, of Christians. He, he says, imagine there is a small island that is packed with people. And there is a very narrow, small bridge leading from the island to the mainland. But these people uh, don't, don't realize it. They don't realize that their deliverance this bridge is just right there. It, they just got to find it. They are, they're covered in darkness. So they really can't see. It's, it's just pitch black. So God gives them, he gives one group of the people a, a, a small flashlight. It's just a pen light, right? That I mean, the, 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 the light is so very narrow that all they can see 
is like one foot at a time. And so it's hard to get a, an appreciation for where they're going and where they're, what they're going to because the, the stream of light is so narrow. But to the second group of people, he gives a, a very large flashlight that shines all around, right? And it takes very little time for the second group to find the bridge and know the way to the bridge and to walk the bridge. What's fascinating is the people in the second group, very few of them go across the bridge. And what makes matters worse is they don't want to share their flashlight with the first group of people that are limited to just the little pen light. Their idea is, well, they were given what they were given. We were given what we were given. Let them, let them find the bridge on their own. And as a result, very few people ever make it off the island or ever delivered. And Stedman's point is, that's the situation that Paul describes in Romans 1, 2, and 3. That all have sinned. All are lost and in darkness, captured on this small island, the mass of humanity, without them. But in his goodness, he gives to all light even if it's just a pen light. And if they'll just follow that light, they will eventually realize that God is there. Deliverance is there. But they don't. Instead, they stop and they get caught up in petty things. But to some people, he's given this spotlight, this huge light known as the law, as his work. And he's given them his word, this light, in order to be a light to the people, to the other people, the first group of people. That's the Jews. And for us, that's Christians. We are a light set on the hill. We are salt that he has called to season those who are lost. Oh, I guess if, if Paul's admonition to the Jews and to even Christians, it would, it would at least in part be responsibility. We bear a responsibility. When he says there is an advantage to being a Jew, we have, they have the oracles of God, that's what he's referencing. And when you read the Old Testament, God says to them that he has called them to be a light to the nations. So, okay, there we go. Let's, uh, let's spend our last few minutes together talking about the truth. The truth about you and me, okay? The truth about all people. Um, let me just state or kind of summarize what Paul writes here and elsewhere um, this truth is all-inclusive. I mean, it covers everybody, okay? It is a condition that we all share. And it, and it begins with 
the reach or the scope of sin in all of our lives. And part of, part of sin's deceitfulness is that we often don't even realize how we are affected by it. And I would dare say that, 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 that perhaps as we go through these, and we're just going to skim through them, some of you are going to think to yourself, well, that's, that can't be true. Or, it, or even more personally, that can't be true of me. All right? But I want you to notice Paul pulls no punches. And uh, I, know, I want you to notice um, his vernacular, the words he uses. So here we go. We're just, we're just going to go through this, starting in verse 9. What then? Are we Jews any better off? Now, that's a different question than in verse 1. What's the advantage? Here he says, are the Jews any better off? And again, in bluntness, he says, no, not at all. And here's why. For we have already charged that all. If you mark in your Bibles, I would encourage you to just maybe put a couple of, underline that a couple of times. All, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. And here we go. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. What he's saying is we are all guilty. We are not righteous to stand before God in and of ourselves. Verse 11. No one understands. No one seeks for God. Uh, we are confused, right? And then we are convinced. We don't understand to the point that we don't even seek Him. The, the idea is we can do this on our own. I, I can find my way on my own. I can be good enough on my own. We're confused. And in our confusion, we are convinced that we can work this out, all right? Verse 12, all have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, no, not even one. We are all guilty. Guilty. If you had to put a stamp over you and me and all of humanity, it would be guilty. It would be guilty. We've all turned aside. No one does good. And then as if to just say, let me make myself clear, not even one. Verse 13, their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curse, curses and bitterness. Um, not only are we all these things, uh, we're guilty, we're confused, we're convinced, but we boast of our self-confidence, right? I mean, our tongues spew anything we want them to say. And we are uh, arrogant with our words and our boasting in ourselves. Verse 15, their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. We not only are lost in our depravity, but we are willing to fight for our depravity. You know, you look at these verses, and I know we've got one more to go, but I, I don't know, you know, there are very few passages in Scripture that along with perhaps...
Perhaps verb in the second half of chapter one that summarize our modern day human condition like like these verses do. I mean, um, we are lost and we are we are guilty, we are depraved, and man, we're willing to fight for our depravity. Don't tread on me, right? You know, don't get in my face. If I want to be an arrogant uh, abuser of the truth that God is real, then that's what I'll do. And that's who I will be. And subsequently, that's who we are. Well, then finally, verse 18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. We don't fear God. The idea here is uh, when it comes to God, at the, at the heart of who we are, the sense is nothing to see here. No big deal. God, who needs him? We have advanced way beyond any antiquated notion of a personal God that cares and has something to say and speak into my life. All right? So our condition, our condition and I would just say, as you, as you go through these, it, it is very obvious. If we're going to be honest, and this is Scripture, this is not Steve's adding to, um, this is not some kind of weird, strange, uh, cultic idea or doctrinal system. This is just God's Word. The bottom line is, when, when you read things like there's none righteous, no one understands how this one. No one seeks for God. What we have to comprehend is, but wait a minute. I'm a child of God. I did finally come to Christ. So how do I reconcile the fact that I'm a Christian, I've surrendered my life to the Lord Jesus, and the fact that at least at some point, I, I would not, could not seek after God. I, I didn't understand. I'm all these things that Paul describes here. I couldn't do good. The answer is what we referred to earlier in verses 1 through 8. I needed something outside of myself to not only do what it would take to save me, but I needed someone somebody outside of myself to put into me the desire to want God. I didn't just dream up. I didn't wake up one day and go, yeah, you know what? I think I've been wrong all these years. I think I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to choose God and bring him into my life. That's not the way that works. We're, what Paul is really doing is he is exposing our need for ultimate grace. And the fact that I, though I could not see and would not seek, now see because I've sought, that's an act of the mercy of God in me. Paul could identify with this readily. Remember, as he's going to arrest Christians in Damascus, God literally stops him and blinds him physically so that he will see. So that he will see. 
that's grace. And though it may have happened physically in Paul's life, it has to happen spiritually for us to come and seek and want and desire God. Okay, wrapping up here, verses 19 and 20. Really, he speaks of the powerful work of the law. And uh, just, I'm, I'm going to take these, I'm going to take verse 20 first. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Just the reason I'm going to this first is because it's right off of what we've just looked at. We are hopelessly lost, left on our own. That's what the law does. That's what the law does. By works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight. I cannot do enough. I cannot keep it well enough. All right? So I'm hopeless and I'm helpless, right, when left to myself. Then, verse 19, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who were under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. Um, when standing before truth, capital T, when standing before God, and we see who he is, and we see who, what, what the, the weightiness of our personal sin has been, um, the result of that is that we will be utterly silenced. When I read this verse, um, I, 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 would, I would echo, so that every mouth may be stopped, the whole world may be held accountable to God. You know, one of the things um, we tried to put into our kids when they were young is don't, don't say shut up to somebody. Um, well, when you stand before God, he's not going to have to tell you to shut up. Just the reality of his holy, perfect presence and my completely sinful, rebellious heart, I will shut up. I will shut up. Remember earlier in chapter 2, he, he, he talks about the fact that uh, God is going to render to each one of us according to our works. Um, he will judge the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. We, we, we will be silenced. I think of Isaiah. He stood before the Lord and um, God was high and lifted up and his response was, woe is me. Woe is me. That's the, that's the silence of a convicted soul. I think of, I think of Peter as he, although he has seen Jesus and been with Jesus, when Jesus tells him to cast the, the nets on the other side of the boat after he's been fishing all night, and there's this amazing catch of fish that even the nets break, and it's like a light comes on, right? That act of grace that for the first time, Peter not only vis visibly sees Jesus, but internally, spiritually, 
his soul realizes who this man is. He is God incarnate. And Peter rushes to him and falls on his knees. Remember, he says, depart from me. Depart from me. For I am a sinful man. That's the heavenly hush. The heavenly silence. In his commentary on Romans, um, Tim Keller quotes John Gerstner, and he leads up to it by saying, a silent mouth is thus a spiritual condition. It is the condition of the person who knows that they cannot save themselves. As John Gerstner explains, quote, the way to God is wide open. There is nothing standing between the sinner and his God. He has immediate and unimpeded access to the Savior. There is nothing to hinder. No sin can hold you back because God offers justification to the ungodly. Nothing now stands between the sinner and God but the sinner's good works. Nothing can keep him from Christ but his delusion that he has good works of his own that can justify God or that can satisfy God. All they need is need. All they must have is nothing. But alas, sinners cannot part with their virtues. They have none that are not imaginary, but they are real to them. So grace becomes unreal. The real grace of God they spurn in order to hold on to the illusory virtues of their own. Their eyes fixed on a mirage, they will not drink real water. They die of thirst with water all about them. My friend, that is the human condition. It is the condition of the pagan that has just completely, thoroughly rejected God, and it is the condition of the man or woman that is somehow attempting to justify themselves by their own religious deeds. You are, you are dying of thirst with water all around you because your only hope, my only hope, is to release all of our best, even our best efforts, and lay them at the cross of Christ and trust Jesus and Jesus alone. I pray and hope that you will. And we will see this in living color next time. Let's pray. Father, we love you. Um, some difficult things we find in your word and especially in what we've covered today. I pray, God, that in the difficulty, we will not run from it, but, Lord, we would let you, through your word, through this truth, change us and compel us to our need of you. For you are found and we pray in Jesus Christ. Amen and amen. All right. As always, we invite you to stay with us for just the last couple of minutes as we worship him in song. I look forward to being with you next time. May he bless you in the end. God bless.